0: So the scripture reading this morning is from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 47, verses 1 to 12. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple South of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water. And it was ankle deep Again he measured a thousand And led me through the water And it was knee deep Again he measured a thousand And led me through the water And it was waist deep Again he measured a thousand And it was a river That I could not pass through For the water had risen It was deep enough to swim in a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah. And enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea. From Ingeti to Iniglium, it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month, because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food, and their leaves for healing. This is the very word of God. So as we've seen, the book of Ezekiel ends with Ezekiel's long prophetic vision in chapters 40 to 48. We've seen that this vision is centered around three themes. A new temple, a new law, or a new Torah, and new divisions of the land among Israel's 12 tribes. We looked at those first two themes in the past two weeks And next week, Lord willing, we'll conclude our study of Ezekiel, finally, by considering that last theme. But today, our study focuses on these 12 verses at the beginning of chapter 47, which comes at the beginning of this last theme. Here, Ezekiel sees a stream of water flowing out from the temple... And becoming a great and mighty river. The river becomes the source of what could only be described as some sort of utopian image of flourishing. A prosperous civilization. Just consider again the words that come there at the end of verse 9. Everything will live where the river goes. What are we to make of this river and its image of abundance? We sort of know what it means, probably, even if you can't articulate it. It's certainly good news. But we really need to know about this image because it's one that is ubiquitous in the Bible. In this image of the river, you find one of the great symbols of what the Bible is actually all about, So I want want us to settle in on these 12 verses this morning because of the central place that this river and its meaning takes in all the scriptures, literally from Genesis to Revelation, as we're going to see in this message. I'd like you to consider with me this morning, first, the assurance of the river, second, the access to it, and then lastly, the abundance that emerges from it. The assurance of the river, the access to the river, and then the abundance that emerges from it. First, the assurance of the river. Now, there's no doubt that the river is a symbol. It's a mistake to interpret it and a lot of the other images in Ezekiel's final vision in some sort of literalist way. What this river means, however, what it is meant to communicate to us is not something then as a symbol that we just have to dream up, imagine, speculate about. I'm pretty sure that when Ezekiel went back to the exiles and communicated to them this vision of the river, they knew exactly what the river was meant to symbolize. You see, the very first time in the Bible... That the river is mentioned is all the way back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 10. Let me read it to you. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The river in Eden is quite similar to the river that we're reading about here in Ezekiel, because the Garden of Eden was itself a temple. Did you know that? That's what the whole idea of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where heaven and earth intersect, where God comes and lives among his people. And so, in both Eden and Ezekiel, we are told about a river coming out from the temple. And as it goes out from the temple, increasing in size as it waters and nourishes the land and brings about abundance and prosperity. Now, in Genesis, we are told that the river flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And then it says this, And the gold of that land is good, abundant, prosperous. So also here in Ezekiel, we are told that this river flows out from the new temple and goes down into the Arabah. Now, the Arabah is the southern region of Israel. It's a dry, arid region. It's a desert. Probably the most uh, well-known place in the southern part of Israel is a particular sea. We call it today, thanks to what modern Israelis Uh, often call it, a sea of death, or the Dead Sea. Well, this Arabah, this southern region, this arid desert land, is a desert no more. Not when this temple flows there. We are told in verse 8 that when the river enters the sea, that is, the salt sea, the sea of death, called that because of the high content of salt and other minerals, the highest percentage of salt in any body of water on the earth. Because of that high concentration, it prevents any uh, plants or fish from thriving there. It's why Israelis call it the Dead Sea. So what Ezekiel is seeing here is clearly an image. It's a symbol. It's a metaphor. But it's a well-known one. It's the Edenic River flowing out from the temple, bringing life and prosperity, where before... There has only been death and impoverishment. Now, what would an image like that mean to Ezekiel and his fellow exiles? A big clue comes in verse 6. Ezekiel's tour guide asks him, son of man, have you seen this? Now, that's a rhetorical question, meant to lead Ezekiel and us to ponder the significance of Of what he has just seen. So ponder it. What might Ezekiel have been thinking when he saw this river? All the way back in Ezekiel chapter 8, one of the other times where Ezekiel retells having visions of God, like he said at the beginning of chapter 40, when he was taken back to Jerusalem, He received at that point, it was a long time ago, I know that. Ezekiel chapter 8, he received a behind the scenes look at what was going on in the temple in Jerusalem. Do you remember what he saw? Abomination after abomination, idolatry, worshiping of images. As he went through that tour and saw what was really going on in the temple, His tour guide then said, just like he does here, Have you seen this, O Son of Man? So the question that he's asked here certainly reverberated in Ezekiel's mind as he remembered the last time that he had been taken on a tour of the temple. Is it too light a thing, Ezekiel eight seventeen says, for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here, that they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger? In other words, the last time Ezekiel had this tour of the temple and saw the abominations that were going there, what he was pondering, what he was led to see, the implications of the abominations in the temple was that the acts that were done in the temple could not be contained there. It spilled over, flowed out into the rest of the land. So in Ezekiel 8, what flowed out, what spilled out from the temple was abominations. And the result of that for the land, violence. Ezekiel is here seeing the reversal of that devastation. The temple rebuilt. The glory of God, once again, filling the temple. Proper worship, we looked at last week, restored in the temple. No more idolatry, no more abominations. And then, what then would be the effect? What would be spilling out of a temple where the glory of God was filling the temple and where God was properly worshipped? And Ezekiel sees here just what he saw there. The effects could not be contained to the temple. It would necessarily flow out and affect the rest of the land, healing and restoring it to its potential for abundance and prosperity. So do you see what this river means? It is a message of assurance to the exiles first who heard it that no matter the devastation that they themselves have caused, worshiping images in the temple, no matter the devastation that they have caused, God will see to it that that devastation is reversed. This is a message that the Bible majors on, and unfortunately, a lot of us Christians are not known for proclaiming this message. There is no devastation caused by human sin that cannot be healed by the restorative waters that flow from God's temple. There is no devastation caused by human sin that cannot be healed, reversed, by the healing waters that flow from God's temple. None. No disease, no death, No broken marriage or any other broken relationship is stronger than the force of the river. That's what it means. You can see why Ezekiel's prophecies had such a strong effect on the exiles in Babylon. At the lowest moment of despair, of remorse and regret, came the assuring news that the God of Israel was on the move, bringing a river of life That would, what could it do? It could even make the Dead Sea alive. Teeming with life. and Possibility. So when would it come to pass? When the God of Israel became king. When he returned to his temple. When he filled the temple with his presence and power and glory. And that's what Ezekiel's final vision is all about. We've already seen that. The moment has come. The moment is is at hand. These last nine chapters in Ezekiel are, to put it in the words of one commentator, an exposition of the theme of the restored kingdom of God. When God begins to rule again, the healing waters that flow from his temple will even make the Dead Sea alive. It's not a message, then, that we're usually familiar with, talking about from the Bible, because to put it bluntly, this is not a message about how you and I can get out of the world and find a utopia in some disembodied heaven. That's the message you think the Bible's all about? This one standing right in your face. This is a promise of healing for the world that you inhabit today. So this river is a sign of hope precisely when you sense or fear there's no hope left. But of course, if you're going to benefit from the river and grab some assurance from it, then you're going to <laughs> you have to get near, near it, right? You're in, a, you're in a, a desert region. You know there's no water around. When you start to see green grass and trees water nearby so you're gonna have to access it it doesn't do anyone any good simply to know that there is a river of life somewhere even if that's the case what good is that if I can't step into it if I can't build my house somewhere nearby so if there, if there were to be a river like this, how would anyone gain access to it? It's interesting to envision the scene that Ezekiel describes for us in the middle part of uh, these verses here. He, he first stands by the inside entrance of the temple, verse 1, uh, on its east side, and he sees water flowing out from the south of the altar. Then he goes around to the outside of the temple on the east side where he sees that the water has just begun to trickle out. You know, you, If you start to see water dripping from the ceiling in your roof, then you know that something's been going on up there for a little bit of time. And it's probably worse up there than it is here, right? Now notice then in, in verses 3 through 6... What happens? It's kind of a strange image. Ezekiel is led further and further east, away from the temple, in 1,000 cubit segments, right? You notice that? Uh, A a cubit, uh, uh, or 1,000 cubits, is about 1,500 feet. And as he goes with each of these segments, what does he see? He sees that the trickle of water coming out from the temple has begun to actually get deeper and deeper as he goes along. Standing in it, it grows from ankle deep to knee deep to waist deep and then to a point where it appears to be completely over his head. You can't walk through it. You'd have to swim to try to get to the other side. We can only conclude then downstream that the water has been running for some time. Otherwise, you'd expect that downstream, in this case, the water would have been more shallow than closer to the source. But what's even more interesting is that the depth of the river has grown remarkably in a distance. Put those four 1,500 feet segments together. You're just a little over a mile. And so in just a little over a mile, the river has become, well, the, the stream, the trickle of water has become a deep and mighty powerful river. And it caught Ezekiel's attention. He was amazed by what he saw. And you have to kind of be in the river to know about its depth. Then he is taken back out of the river, and he stands on its bank, and he makes observations from that vantage point. And what does he see? Here's what it says. Very many trees on the one side and on the other. And according to verse 12, these trees are fruit trees. Which kind would you like? I want some peaches. Apples? Okay. They got to be good ones, though. Peaches? Man. The river has not just been going for a little bit of time. It's been going long enough at least, or powerfully enough at least, that there's already... A grove of fruit trees. It's a wonderful image. What a sight it must have been. I mean, Ezekiel's just trying to tell us about it, but you have to access it to really take it in, right? I mean, what, he probably smelled the fruit. At any rate, Ezekiel must have recalled when he had this experience the words of the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 35, we read this. This is the promise of God. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. Blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. This is a beautiful image. There's no sadness here. This This is paradise. Isaiah predicted This experience would be one of seeing the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. When the time comes, when in fact, Isaiah says, I'm just quoting here from Isaiah 35, when the waters break forth in the wilderness and streams show up in the desert, he says, it will belong to those who walk on the way. And listen to these words of the prophet Isaiah. He says, even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. I love that. (laughs) I mean, you can't, this is going to be so powerful, so all-consuming that even if you are an idiot, (laughs) you're not going to walk away from this scene. That's good news for some of us. Verse 9, Isaiah 35, 9 says, all of the redeemed shall walk there. And indeed, Ezekiel walked there among the trees of paradise. How about you and I? Can we also have access to this river, this river of life? I hope by now you've been Studying Ezekiel 40 to 48 with me, I hope by now you do not think that what Ezekiel saw here was merely a glimpse of what you and I might call the end of history. The final biblical vision of the eternal state. I I hope that you're not saying, well, this is great. One day, one day, but we're just living in deserts. You read your Bible that way? Lots of Christians do. The burden of the Christian gospel, the whole point of being a Christian, is to proclaim the good news to everyone that you and I have access now to these fruit trees and this river in advance of the time when it has come in its glorious fullness. You're probably ahead of me, because you guys are some smart people, not the idiot like me. You're, You're some smart people out there, so you're probably ahead of me in recalling that when Jesus came, he came offering, full stop, No question about it, he came offering access to the river of life. He opened up the doors of access to anyone who would want to come. What what texts are we thinking of? Well, Jesus claimed to have already brought about Or to come as the fulfillment of Ezekiel's final vision. What Ezekiel is getting a a glimpse of that's coming in the future, Jesus in his first coming says, I've come to bring it to fulfillment. Remember, he claimed to be the temple, he claimed to be the fulfillment of the Torah. So it's no surprise then that Jesus would also have something to say about Ezekiel's river, don't you think? If, Ezek, if, if Jesus has in his mind, I'm, I've come to fulfill the vision of Ezekiel 40 to 48, then he claims to be a temple, he claims to fulfill the Torah, it's no surprise then, we should expect that Jesus is going to say something about a river of life, and here you go. Remember the Samaritan woman that Jesus encountered at the well at high noon when no one else would come to draw water? He said to her these words, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman then asked what you and I would have asked. Where do you get that? It's a question of access. Okay, let's say you have you have access to the river of life. How are you going to get it to me? How are you going to let me in on it? How do I get in on this good news? And here is how Jesus answered her. Go call your husband and come here. And in the ensuing dialogue, you remember the story, Jesus exposed the woman's brokenness. She had already gone through five husbands and was currently living with candidate number six. But Jesus wasn't shaming her. He wasn't there to bring more pain and death into her life. He had come to heal. To give her life precisely where she had experienced the most pain. Jesus exposed her sin so that she could experience the life-giving water where she needed it most. In Jesus, you and I have access to living water. It's the gift of God. You only have to ask for it. He will gladly give it to you. He's not a stingy God. He says, well, got to save a little bit for, you know, people I like more. No, he's flowing, plenty to drink for anyone. But listen to me, unless you admit your need for it, precisely in those places where you have become dry and desperate, you will never come to him and you'll never ask. Jesus wants to take us into the water, and sometimes he wants to take you in over your head. That's why we're Baptists, just threw that in, so that we will see that this is where we need it most. He wants to immerse you in his life-giving water. The woman's greatest Need was not to never have to go to the well at noon to draw water. It was never to have to find in someone else a love that she could only experience from God himself. So he took her deep into the water. Now in the New Testament, there is no one else more focused on the river of life than John, who wrote that story for us. John clearly had come to see and be fully convinced that in Jesus, this river of life was accessible to everyone. Because John was also the one who wrote the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, he unfolds how Jesus has brought to the world this vision of restoration. In Revelation chapter 7, John has a vision. And he sees a people who have been brought out of great tribulation, out of great pain, sorrow, and distress. He describes them as people who hunger and thirst no more. But it's not because they no longer need water. Rather, he sees that it is Jesus who will, quote, Revelation seven seventeen guide them to springs of living water. See, everyone is looking for refreshing water. You know what the symbol is. This isn't hard to get the idea of the goodness of a river in a a desert place. But it's only Jesus who can give it to you every single time. You want access to the river of life? Let him take you there. Let him in on your pain and your poverty. Let him in on your sin and, yes, on your shame. Let him heal your distress and your devastation. The only thing that keeps you from accessing the river is your reluctance to let him in on those places where the only hint of moisture are the tears that flow from your eyes. So let's get into the river. What's holding you back? Now, lastly, notice the abundance that comes from the river. You're going to let him take you into the water? What are you going to expect to happen? Well, in Ezekiel's vision, there are two main images that speak to the abundance that comes from this life giving river. Fish and fruit. Now I'm glad there's fruit because I don't know if I'm going to do the fish thing. I'm trying, I'm trying. So in ver- here, here's what he says. Um, what is this? Verse ten, I think. Fishermen will stand beside the sea. It says, "It's the Dead Sea that's now been." Transformed by this river of life. From Engedi to Engliam, it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the Great Sea. The Great Sea is the Mediterranean. So I'm told by Mediterranean folks that I know that that's some good fish coming out of that sea. Here's the Dead Sea, teeming with life. Fish as good as you'd get from the Mediterranean. That's the image. That's the symbol. And then there's, we've already seen, fruit. Lots of fruit. You don't like this kind, you got another kind. Plenty for everyone to eat. But here's the deal. As far as I know, fish have to be caught and fruit has to be harvested. God wants his abundance to come to the world but he needs fishermen. He needs harvesters. God's purpose and plan from the beginning was to bring about his life giving glory into his world through his image bearers, through his people. It would not be the case. That these fishermen or the harvesters would say, or should say, look how awesome we are. They would say, what a fishing spot we found. Teeming with life. What trees grow in plentiful abundance? We just got to go pick the fruit. It's God who's giving the life. Is that clear? Can we just not debate that? But God wants to work through his people to bring about the abundance for everyone. There's two more places that we've got to see in our Bibles where John uses Ezekiel's river imagery. Because I'm just adamant to try to convince us, still got some work to do on some of you, that Ezekiel's vision has been brought to its completion in Jesus that this is the place that you and I live in. What a day, what a day. All right, so let's look at the first one. Turn there if you can, John chapter seven. John chapter seven, because this imagery of, of life-giving water that Jesus uses in John chapter seven ought to catch your atten- attention in light of what Ezekiel's vision is with fishermen, fruit to be harvested. John seven thirty seven to 39 Here's what it says. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Stop there. Access has been given. That's what he's saying, right? You want to get in the river? Come on. Well, what about me? Anyone. But you don't know what I, just come. You don't understand. I'm saying to you, whoever you are, Come to Jesus. If you're thirsty, he will give you drink. He's not turning you away. The only prerequisite is you gotta be thirsty enough to come. Verse 38, Jesus says, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Stop there. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? The water that begins in the temple and grows into a mighty river is fulfilled in God's people who are scattered throughout the world to bring access to the life-giving water everywhere and in every place. What a plan of God. That You want to see the mission of God? There it is. This is not our work. We don't get the credit for it. It's God's work done through us. How? Verse 39, John 7:39. Now, this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, glorification for Jesus means he's going to the cross. He's going to die, he's going to be buried, and he's going to be gloriously raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. Why does he go to heaven? To be enthroned as king of the universe. And when God becomes king, the water begins to flow. How does the water flow? Through his image bearers, just as he's always been from the beginning, who are extensions. Can I say that? Tributaries. Tributaries of the life-giving water that Jesus alone can provide. It's through the Holy Spirit that we are equipped to be people through whom the message of forgiveness, forgiveness of sins, becomes a reality in the world. We are thereby sent into the world as the Father sent Jesus to Israel to implement there by their witness, by our witness to him, the unique and decisive events of the ministry of Jesus, his death, his life, his death, and his resurrection. It's what you're sent out to proclaim. So in Psalm 1, the psalmist begins the Psalter by writing about a godly person, the righteous person who is like a tree, Planted by streams of water. Remember it? Bearing fruit in its season. And even its leaf will not wither. And everything he does will will prosper. You will prosper because of the power of the Holy Spirit. Which has turned you into a little extension of the temple. In every place that you go, that's who you are. Now, look at the last, well, there's one more place we got to go and we're done. But to prepare us for it, Ezekiel 47, 12, the last part of this verse says this. Their fruit will be for food. And then, did you notice this? And their leaves for healing. Their fruit, the fruit of the trees will be for food, got that. And the leaves, even the leaves of the tree have got medicinal powers in them. Now take a look at one other place that John writes about the river of life. It's in the very last chapter of the Bible. So you Genesis to Revelation. <laughs> Revelation 22. Revelation 22. Here's what it says, first, first two verses. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Is there any doubt? He's talking about Ezekiel's vision, which itself is built on the Edenic vision of this river. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. See? Through the middle of the street of the city. Now look what it says. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life. With its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There it is. Now see here the revelation of Jesus. When John wrote the revelation, he's saying, I want to tell you how Jesus has brought to completion everything the Old Testament said would happen, including Ezekiel 40 to 48. So see it. Those who trust in Jesus and benefit from him are saved. They are rescued. They are restored. But why? Not so that they can one day go to heaven, but so, but so that God's healing love would flow through them and cover the world. People from every tribe and tongue. And language and nation will know the one who is the river of life. So, the grove of trees, Revelation calls it the tree of life, which is what God has saved you to give to the world. Twelve kinds of fruit, he says which is a clear symbol in the New Testament of the renewed people of God. We call it the church of Jesus Christ, like the capital C church, not just us, but all all who testify and proclaim the name of Jesus become in some way the extension of God's healing love into his world. That's our message. And so God in his mercy and grace and in his wisdom, listen to me, has planted you exactly where he needs you to be so that the extension of his healing love will flow to everyone around you. You didn't hear that. You did not hear that. God, in his mercy and love and wisdom, has put you, has planted you in the the, the places, the geographical places, like the house you live in, the place you go to work at, the place you recreate in, but also the circumstances you find yourself in today. He has led you there, sometimes over your head. Why? So that the healing love of his life-giving water will flow to others who would otherwise never never get in it. I never met Tim Keller. I was in the room with him twice, a big room, one of thousands. The first time I was in that room was life-changing. I didn't even know who he was. It was October 2006. Heard him speak, deliver a message about evangelism in a postmodern world almost 17 years ago. When I got news on Friday, was heading, back to, heading over here to the church, heard the news, it hit me, I was more emotional than I thought I would be. I, this isn't somebody I personally knew, you wouldn't know who I am. But in that message I heard him preach in October of 2006, I don't know how else to say this, I don't know how to say this, but I came home from that little trip, my wife can tell you, and I said, I think the Lord wants us to plant a church in the city. It was because of that message. We are sitting here today, (laughs) no exaggeration, because God planted Tim Keller right there in that spot to deliver a message, changed my life. Where has God planted you? What is the work he has called you to do to bring the healing power of his life-giving love? There's a musician named Josh Ritter. As far as I know, he's not a Christian. I don't know. He wrote a song called Only a River. He wrote it in his dorm room in the stairwell, in the in his dorm, in the stairwell of his dorm, uh, in a very lonely place. Only a river. The song, though, uh, it's a, uh, in, in the song he has a line that says, "Only a river going to make things right." You don't even have to be a Christian to kind of get the symbolism, right? What shocked Josh Ritter is to find that. Bob Weir, is that how you say it, of the Grateful Dead. And Bob Dylan ended up singing his song that he wrote In a Lonely Place. It's kind of how it works in the world. The things that you think are coming out of brokenness and sorrow and sadness and distress, God wants to turn into a life-giving stream. Even non-Christians echo that reality because God made the world to be that way. So you and I, who are called to bring a transformative, life-giving love into the world, can only do so if we come to the real river. The only one that's going to make things right. The one who said, come to me if you're thirsty and I'll give you drink. So let's come to him again. And then be sent out to bear fruit for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you to teach us who Jesus is, what he has brought into the world through the life-giving power of his love. His life lived His life freely laid down for the world. And you call us into that river. Sometimes it gets pretty deep. But in that deep place, there's the goodness of knowing there's plenty, plenty for everyone who is thirsty to come. Now, for some reason, we so easily get twisted and turned and start to take credit for what you want to do, we take credit for it ourselves. So we gotta come back over and over again. Not because you're angry at us, not because not because you you have not made us your people, but because we gotta remember who we are. We have to remember where the power supply is, where the life is found. And you sent us out in an amazing, enormous privilege to bear witness to you and to your kingdom. But we gotta come and drink. We've gotta abide in Christ. We ask you today, by your grace, remind us who we are, that we might go now in this week ahead and bear fruit, fruit that will last, fruit that will be part of your eternal kingdom. For the glory of God, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.